Welcome to the CEC Report. It's the 12th of January. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by CEC Leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome Craig. Yeah, thanks Robbie. In this week's CEC Report, next stage in the fight against bank bail-in. And what has five eyes and wears fishnet stockings? So first, Craig, I'll say Happy New Year. I wasn't with yeah, you last you're week. You're keep us in suspense, aren't you Robbie? I will we'll keep suspenders, you in suspense. I should say. I'll keep you in suspense and whoever's wearing suspenders. All right, because we're going to talk about bail-in first. Mm-hmm. Next stage in the fight against bank bail-in. Um, it's now Friday. We were told, Craig, that the, um, the majority of submissions to the Senate Economics Legislation Committee on the APRA bail-in bill would be posted by today. We haven't seen them yet. Um, I'm a little bit loath to complain too much because we did create a huge job for them, right? Thanks to the, the viewers of the CEC report and the CEC subscribers to the alert service, etc. People who activated and wrote a letter to this committee, we've really flooded them. You know, we, we got a, um, uh, as many as 800, probably even more. We have to get to see the final figures. And this is a committee that would normally get about eight yeah. submissions, yeah. right? So this, we created a huge job for them. Anyway, the thing is with these su- submissions, though, the ones that have put up there so far, and there's 15 of them, some are quite explosive. And in my view, the most explosive one is the one you talked about on the show last week, Dr. Wilson's size submission. He's the former APRA principal researcher, and he wrote a submission that blew apart the main myth that politicians believe about APRA and this, and this issue. And the main myth they believe, which is what I know they believe it, because we've got constituents to write hundreds and hundreds of letters to members of parliament on this issue, and they're all getting back the same reply. And the reply is, don't worry, it can't apply, these bail-in powers for APRA can't apply to deposits because Australian deposits are guaranteed by the financial claim scheme. And Dr. Sy's submission says, rubbish. It's not an absolute guarantee, which means it's not a guarantee that's right there on your deposits right now. It's, if anything, a contingent guarantee. It can. It's only it has to be activated before it comes into effect, and there's an in the website it says if this only is in effect if the government activates it when a bank fails. That's his point. So it's not an absolute guarantee, and if APRA has to decide, he argues between um, protecting deposits and financial stability, it's going to choose financial stability. And there's two other assumptions built into this, Robbie. The first is that, first of all, there's only one bank that collapses. It's That's not true. a systematic collapse of the banking system. Yes, yeah, so even though this is post-2008 legislation where we saw a systemic banking meltdown, it's, it's this fake, oh, only one bank will go at a time or something. Yeah, and the provision for the financial claim scheme is only $20 billion for any authorised deposit-taking institution. So, for example, if, hypothetically, the Commonwealth Bank gets into trouble, it's only, the, the government's only allowed to you know, appropriate $20 billion at the first pass. And that's not going to touch the sides of the guaranteed deposits. deposits of the Commonwealth Bank are more like $190 billion. Mm. So the whole thing is, like we've said on this program many times, smoke and mirrors, because banking is one big confidence trick. Yeah. It's, that's what it is. That's, that's why in the 2009 period, the 2008-2009 period, this whole financial claim scheme was wheeled out to try and give the impression that everything was okay, that you could be confident in the system. And whilst they've been, you know, whilst that was wheeled out, they've been very, very busy behind the scenes putting together legislation for bail-in. 
And just a quick history, you know, if you go back to 2013, we saw the model of Cyprus where the European uh, model was, was to literally take the deposits of the people in Cyprus above 100,000 euro and literally use that to uh, wipe out the debts of the bank at that particular time. They stole them, hmm. right? Now that was to be the model for the world and it has become the model for the world. This is called bail-in. Now, at that time, we found out that there was legislation in train in 2013 for Australia. And we started screaming from the rooftops that this is what's coming to Australia. Now, since 2013, you know, we've had all these assurances that people's deposits are guaranteed, this is not coming to Australia. Then late last year, we found out this whole, what we call omnibus legislation was passed and it's giving the potential for APRA to have this sort of... It was drafted. It was drafted. Not passed. Not passed. Yeah, it was drafted for the members of parliament to pass at some stage this year the potential for bailing. And we say potential because the way this uh, legislation is worded, there's no clear-cut statement in this legislation to say your deposits are protected. And if Nothing. And if Australian deposits are not going to be bailed under this leg bailing legislation, Craig, we'll be the only jurisdiction in the world where deposits are not are not included, and that's just weird, right? So you, you can't you got it you, you can't go by the reassurance of politicians. You have got to go by what's in the actual legislation. And as you said, they can drive a truck through it. What you just recounted though is what's in the CEC submission that yes. we put into this. We've gone we've gone through that. The other thing we put in our submission though is the is the alternative to bail in, right? Which is what if anything, it's what really shows up how bad bail in because there is a way you can protect deposits and provide absolute financial st stability to the financial system, which is Glass-Steagall. Yeah, Robbie, and I think just to show you how desperate, before I could look at the solution is Glass-Steagall, we've gone on a counter, an offensive here to expose the fact that bail-in is to steal people's deposits. And the same uh, operation is taking place of all places in India, yeah. right, where bail-in is on the agenda there. So we've had some, you know, cross collaboration with some of the people in India that are fighting the same thing. Just the reason why is all the G20 countries committed to this as a policy, yeah. um, but not, ever, not all of them have delivered on it. And no. it's, it's the ones in Asia that have been the foot dragging, including Australia, including India. And so now suddenly countries like Australia and India are saying, oh, we better pass it. Well, which makes the, the solution actually of Glass-Steagall even more important. So what does Glass-Steagall do? Well, Glass-Steagall is the name given to a bill back in 1933 by Franklin Roosevelt who, who actually had to deal with the same problem of the too-big-to-fail problem back then, which caused the Great Depression. And what he did was he said, we have to have a, a necessary commercial banking system. So we're going to quarantine that necessary commercial banking system, the boring banking system, as it's called. Which everyone uses. Everyone uses. You know, you go to the bank, you get your, you get your money out of your deposits, you go there for loans, for mortgages and so forth. That has to be quarantined and guaranteed and protected. But all the risky stuff, like derivatives and... You know, all the insurance broking, the stock broking, the, the securities trading, securities trading, all that stuff that's now in these, in these too big to fail banks, these huge one-stop banking shops that they've become, gets broken off and separated. And it's not guaranteed. Yeah, you know, so your, your derivatives trading and everything, you know, that's just that goes back to being what it is: risky investment banking. And it's not like this has not been known in the past. I mean, investment bankers have always been happy to be investment bankers. Yeah. It's only been in the last 30 years or so, since the 90s, in fact, that you've had a merging of the two since the breakdown of Glass-Steagall and you've seen the build-up of a massive speculative bubble internationally and you've seen 
what had took place with the global financial crisis has put the entire financial system at risk, everyone's savings. So we've got to go back to a highly regulated system, Glass-Steagall to protect people's deposits. And Robbie, this is not a banking question. This is a political question, which is why we as a political party encourage people to get involved politically. Well, here's what they can do, Craig, because you know, we've set, we did a really good job so far on, this, on fighting this bill, but we now have to defeat it. And what's going to happen at the end of this month is the Senate committee that we've made these submissions to will, will hold hearings at some stage, right? They've got a, a soft deadline of the 9th of February to have some kind of report. They may not meet that deadline. They're going to hold some kind of hearings. We know that some of the people that will testify before those hearings are very interesting people, right? That, that should get a lot of publicity. But when you consider that this bill is only known because um, someone in our office detected a Friday afternoon press release by Scott Morrison in the middle of winter, which he put out on Friday afternoon because it's called taking out the trash. They don't want people to notice this stuff. They don't want reporters to notice it. They, they would have loved to have snuck this through the way that bail-in has effectively been sneaked through all around the world, right? So the, fact, the publicity we've got for it so far, the attention we've put on it so far is a huge um, interim victory, right? So what we need to think in those terms that, okay, when Parliament resumes, you've got six senators that are going to look at this on the committee, but we should bring in all senators and all members of Parliament on this question. So what we're asking people to do, um, continue the, the sort of uh, participation you've had with us so far, but what you need to do now is we have produced a, 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 um, a, a little pamphlet that contains a press release that we've just put out on this question of deposits are not guaranteed, right, using, quoting Dr. Sy's submission, and our CEC submission. And we've produced it so that you supporters can get copies and take to your Member of Parliament and as many senators as you can contact. Either email it to them, take it to them. But when you do, demand a written reply, right, because that's what they tend to do. Give you, a written, you want a written reply to this. Force them to look at it. Um, what I also encourage people to do is go onto the website of the Senate committee. The, the first submission up there is Dr. Sy's submission. Download a copy of that. It's really well written. It's only four pages. S give that to the Member of Parliament as well. Make sure they see it directly in his own words, right? So there's two things to give to Members of Parliament before the end of the month. If all Members of Parliament get this multiple times, right, multiple times, they're like, you've got to treat them like... As someone said to us once, you've got to treat politicians like a second grader, right? Um, you've got to repeat things a lot to get it sent through their head so that when they return to Parliament in February, they've all been hit repeatedly on this and this becomes the topic of conversation between them. So that sometime after this committee hands down its report, etc., and there's a vote, these MPs are not just going to file in and say to the whip, oh, which, which side do we vote on? Because they have no idea what the actual issue is. They're going to know, hell, this is controversial legislation. I want my party to reassure me that I'm not going to vote on something now that's going to bail in deposits. Because they don't want to, I can tell you, members of parliament do not want to be responsible for the bail in deposits. As written, they're going to be, right? So it's up to us to do that. So this is, this is the next step in the campaign. We've got till the end of the month to make sure we saturate MPs with this. And they're just coming back from holidays and all those types of things. So call in to the, to the number on the screen, get a copy, either emailed to you or posted to you of this submission pamphlet we've done, get Dr. Sy's submission off the website and send that out. That's think, the next step. And I think, Robbie, also people should call and get a copy of our Australian Alert Service, 
which and can, then they can follow our. We keep you updated on all this. On all this material. Right, that's that. That is true. You'll get a free copy of that as well. All right, let's take a break, Craig, because when we come back, we're going to get a bit interesting. Welcome back to the CEC report. What has five eyes and wears fishnet stockings? It's not a fish, Robbie. It's not a fish. No. Now, Craig, this is funny, but it's actually not a joke either. The answer to the question, just for the benefit of the viewer, is this guy here, Alexander Downer. And there he is parading in his fishnet stockings. What's five eyes? Well, five eyes is the intelligence alliance between Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United Kingdom and the United States, where our spy agencies coordinate with each other as this multinational spying group, more powerful than any of the nations involved, mm. right? Mm. That's what Five Eyes is, and um, that's who Downer is. So anyway, we'll get to that in more, in, in more detail in a minute. The reason we're talking about this is because on the 30th of December, the New York Times had a breaking story. Um, which is that this guy, Alexander Downer, is the credible source of the original evidence that Russia hacked the United States presidential election. But they didn't name him. They wouldn't name him. No, they named him. They didn't identify him. Identify him, him. right, yeah. They called him an Australian diplomat. And I, I want to we'll elaborate on that. That's a very important detail, right? This Australian diplomat, because any Australian going... What do you mean a diplomat? This is Alexander Downer we're talking about. Anyway, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, why is this important, though? Because why, why are we talking about it on the CEC report? We're going to do the rest of the show on this. Well, this issue of Russia colluding with Trump to hack the election has defined the Trump presidency. And, Craig, a year into the Trump presidency, we can see what it has done. Because if, you know, you can... The beauty of YouTube, go, on, go, go to our shows a year ago or just after Trump was elected, look what we were saying. We were actually happy. Were we, happy, you know, were we ever fans of the personality of Donald Trump? No, no, never, never like that. But given a choice between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, based on what Donald Trump was saying, right, quite forcefully, not casually, forcefully, we were happy because this guy wanted better relations with the United States. With uh, Russia. Sorry, with Russia. Yeah. <laughs> right now he needs better relations with the United States. <laughs> he wanted better relations with, with Russia. Yeah. Right? And, why, and why did he want better relations with Russia? Because well, he said we're the world's two biggest super, nuclear superpowers. We're the only nuclear superpowers, actually. The idea that we should be at loggerheads is dangerous. Right? So Trump gets called all kinds of things you know, as a, as a danger and whatever. But on the fundamental issue that's defined the world since World War II of the danger of a nuclear war, he's more sane, he's been more sane than most of them. Look, the two, these two countries that could blow the world up, there's only two that could do it, it's terrible that they're enemies, mm. right? Um, and we, I want to put up on the screen here, Craig can hold some of them up, we'll do better ones on the screen. The CEC, for four years at least, in at the least. lead up to the Trump presidential election, we were producing newspapers with headlines like this, British Crown's endgame, financial crash and nuclear war, precisely because of this danger. What Trump was intervening on, as Vet was talking about, was incredibly important. We were saying this had to change, right? Um, and here's a guy that said he's going to do it. But as soon as he's elected, he's been dogged by this issue of Russia 
collusion, which has stopped anything from actually happening. Um, <clears throat> here's the thing, though. A year into it, nothing's been proven. No. It's, it's, it's a huge um, media flap all the time that he gets hit with. The minute... The minute Trump tries to do something that we would consider positive, this blows up. Ah, Trump, Russia, Russia, Russia. The minute Trump does something, though, Craig, that is frankly terrible, like when he bombed Syria last year, right, um, or even the passage of this tax break for multi-billionaires, the same people love him. Oh, he's being presidential now. You know, so if he's the same type of president as all his predecessors, they love him. If he's going to deliver on this, ah, Russia, Russia, Russia. So this is, this is a really important issue. However, although they haven't, they haven't proven anything in the 12 months of they've been beaten on about this, what they ha it has backfired in a sense, but we're the only ones noticing this, right? But it's backfired and they've proven something. Not that Russia interfered in the US election, but that the United Kingdom interfered in the US election. The British intelligence has been running this operation to beat up this thing that Russia hacked the election. The claims came from British intelligence and they put up all this fabricated evidence and specifically it came from a, an ex-MI6 ex officer and I would argue there's no such thing. That's right, right? Yeah. So a retired guy who's not on the MI6 payroll but he, his name's Christopher Steele. He runs a private intelligence company in London and he produced this dossier because he was once posted in Russia making all these claims and this was this dossier was the basis for all the action that's been taken um, against Trump. To produce it he worked with a Washington firm called Fusion GPS and that firm was paid by Hillary Clinton's campaign to produce a dirt file on Trump. So that's all this is, it's opposition research for a dirty campaign that has become the, the equivalent of um, uh, intelligence between governments. And to prove that it's, that it's been used for more than intelligence, we know a couple of things. One, it was the basis of the FBI opening an investigation in July 2016. It was the basis of the FBI obtaining warrants to wiretap Trump people like General Michael Flynn when he spoke to the Russian ambassador. Everything he did was legal. He did nothing illegal. He was supposed to make those kind of calls, but they were able to wiretap him on the basis of this kind of document. Um, all it was was a dirt file that this guy made up but it became more official because of people like Sir Andrew Wood, who's the former US, United Kingdom ambassador to Russia. He hates Russia, this guy. He, in the late 2016 period, he gave this dossier to John McCain, Trump's main enemy in the Republican Party, who's also a Russia hater, to make it more official than it should be, right? And Sir Andrew Wood's involvement shows you this is not some, Christopher Steele's not some rogue MI6 guy doing this. This is a British intelligence operation. And I'll get you to comment on what that why in a minute. But let's have a break first and we'll get back to Dana's role in this. Welcome back to the CEC report where we're discussing what has five eyes and wears fishnet stockings. And it's our former foreign minister, Alexander Downer. All right, so before the break, we were talking about this British intelligence running this operation, producing the fabricated claims that Russia um, colluded with Trump. And British intelligence role is, in fact, foreign interference in the US election, but by Britain, not by Russia. That's the real issue here. Um, the, suddenly, though, after a year where they haven't been able to prove anything, and now the Congress is looking closely at this dossier and saying, what's here? 
what's actually here. And they're looking at some of the evidence about that's around it. They're looking at some of the people involved. So, for instance, you know that Trump's under investigation, right, by this special prosecutor. His staff is full of people who despise Trump. They're on the, they've, 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 their emails have been revealed from the 2016 period saying we need to come up with, with insurance in case this guy gets elected, right? So they're conspiring to come up with this kind of operation. And one of them on his staff, this um, attorney, Bruce Orr, on Robert Mueller's staff, his wife, Nellie, worked for Fusion GPS, which was paid the money to produce this fake dossier, right? So this is all coming out. And because it's losing its credibility, lo and behold, on the 30th of December, the New York Times says, no, that wasn't the issue. That wasn't the real source of this. The real source of this was Australia. Let me give you their quote. It was not, as Mr. Trump and other politicians have alleged, a dossier compiled by a former British spy hired by a rival campaign, the Times reported. Instead, it was first-hand information from one of America's closest intelligence allies, us, Australia. So what was it? Alexander Downer, our High Commissioner in London, which is our ambassador, is whining and dining on the, in May 2016 a 28-year-old upstart named George Papadopoulos who is attached to Trump's campaign on the periphery, right? And supposedly Papadopoulos said to Downer, well, we know the Russians have a dirt file on Hillary and they're going to use it. It's based on these hacked emails and they're going to use it to damage her in the campaign. That was the claim. That was the claim. That was done in May 2016, but Downer didn't say anything until July 2016 after WikiLeaks leaked Hillary's emails, right? Um, so why didn't he say anything? Is that's, There's a big question about that, which, you know, a lot of unanswered questions about this. But here's the main gist of what I need people to understand. The New York Times, as you pointed out, they didn't identify Downer. He's just a diplomat. Hmm. Well, of course, he's not a diplomat. He's the longest serving foreign minister in Australian history. And he's our High Commissioner in London. He's our Ambassador. What's, someone, what's a dignitary like Downer doing having this conversation with his 28... He's 65 as well, yeah. with his 28-year-old pup, right? What's going... This is weird. And I'll put a tweet up on the, on the screen there where I, I retweeted by a woman named Mary Dijewski who is part of... She's associated with um, Chatham House. She's, a, she's an analyst in the United Kingdom. And she's retweeted this guy saying, yeah, what's the issue here? Right? This is strange that this is going on. Um, and she says, look, it's, they're doing this because the steel dossier has lost legs. That's, that's why they're doing it. So anyway, it turns out, though, Craig, that Downer is not... It, um, if they had to identify him, it would look weird. But it looks weird to Australians, right? So the Australian press has reported differently. Their reporting is, oh, yeah, they've come up with all these ways to say it's normal. And people can read the details in this article here if they call in and get a copy. But the most important detail is this. When Downer left the Department of Foreign Affairs in 2008, he went and joined the advisory board of a company in London called Hacklute & Company, also founded by ex-MI6 officers. Um, so it's a similar operation to Christopher Steele's. These are retired MI6 guys that frankly are still MI6. This is, they are, when Downer, whatever Downer was doing, he was doing as part of this British intelligence operation, not as some independent third party verifying this claim, using Australia's credibility. Why is British intelligence wanting to interfere this way? Because, Robert, you cannot have, they believe you cannot have any really collaboration between a sovereign Russia and the Trump campaign. If you had two sovereign powers collaborating, you'd have a completely different post-war agenda. You'd have an agenda towards peace, which is what the BRICS countries represent, and that's what they absolutely fear. They fear the peace. 
That's instead right. of peace through development, in, instead of this whole post-war continuing war agenda we've seen under the last several US presidents. All right, so that, I just touched the sides. The details are in here. Call in and get a copy and get involved in the next stage of our campaign, like I said.